everybody. Um, it's so great to see you all here. Welcome to the second week of Drisha's Winter's Mon evening sessions. Um, last week, our theme was on um, sourcing food, plants, animals, and the Jews who tend them. And then this week, we are now moving on to scarcity and plenty, food policy and distribution in Halakha and in America. So uh, we are kicking off this evening with a class on scarcity and Halakha by Rabbanit Leasarna. Um, we encourage you to ask questions by unmuting yourself or by putting questions in the chat. Um, if you're comfortable doing so, please turn on your video so that we would love to see your active participation. And without further ado, Rabbanit Sarna. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Um, Sarah asked me, you know, should I introduce you? Cause like you're not hosting this session, you're teaching the session. And I said, um, that maybe it would make sense for me to actually introduce myself because the stuff that's on my Grisha bio is only kind of half the story of what I bring um, to the shiur tonight. So what you would find in my Grisha bio is that I um, am the Associate Director of Education and Director of High School Programs for Grisha, which means I run our amazing summer high school program which you and all the teenage girls you love should go to. Um, <laughs> and uh, it means I teach adult education for Grisha throughout the year and I teach teenagers a little bit throughout the year. And it also means that, um, or you would also find that like I trained at Yeshiva Maharat, I worked at a shell in Chicago for two years, I have an undergraduate degree from Yale. But what you wouldn't find is that while I was an undergrad at Yale for four years, I was very, very, very active um, in hunger and homelessness activism, which is part of what I bring to this week. Um, when I got to New Haven, I couldn't handle the fact that I was living in a literal castle um, and people right outside the doors were living on the streets. Um, and so that really kicked, and I never lived in an urban environment before growing up in the suburbs and then, um, and then spending a year in Israel on a kibbutz. Um, I'd never really seen, I'd like seen homelessness, you know, for like a minute passing by, but never like all day, every day. It just really was my experience in New Haven. And it, it really woke me up to poverty in the United States um, in a way that I hadn't ever, I mean, I, I thought about it before, or like understood that people were hungry, but it never been kind of as in my face. Um, and so I got very, very involved in the Yale Hunger and Homelessness Action Project. I, ended up directing that. Um, and we both fundraised for the local communities. We helped run a soup kitchen. We recycled food from the dining halls to local soup kitchens. We um, ran a shelter for um, some nights of the year. We um, helped people get the earned income tax credit by opening up a VITA site. And like my particular baby was that um, uh, a lot of the homeless people I knew even had nowhere to leave their stuff if they needed to go to like a job interview or an interview for housing um, because the shelters wouldn't let you leave stuff there. Like maybe your case manager would um, would like be nice and, and they would just take your all of your worldly possessions for the day. But there's also just like a lot of theft and there's not, there, most people experiencing homelessness um, don't have a safe place, didn't and even at the time have a safe place to put their stuff. That was actually not the case in Manhattan. And I went to a shelter in, in Manhattan um, as I was figuring out how to resolve this issue, um, where in Manhattan, they actually do, the shelters do store people's belongings. Um, and it was a little bit intimidating to go to a Manhattan shelter because uh, she was sort of the woman who was the director of the shelter was sort of like, yeah, we go to small claims court a lot when people like leave stuff. And we have a policy that everyone knows that if you leave things and don't show up for another however many days, like we have to get rid of them so that we can turn over the storage unit to someone else. And then like people sometimes take us to court over it, but like, it's, it's never a big deal. And I was sort of like, I am 18 and I cannot go to small claims court against someone. Um, but we, we got a lot of help and we figured out how to resolve that. And then the project that we, we managed to start was eventually absorbed by the city. So now it's not run by undergrads anymore, but it's like fully integrated um, into the city's infrastructure, which is what it honestly should have been all along. But I just wanted to like kind of bring a little bit of like the story that I bring um, to hunger and homelessness. And the other thing that became just really, really clear over the time that I was working on these issues, like all day, every day, is that the United States has enough food, grows enough food to feed its entire population. Um, we heard even at the beginning of, this, of the pandemic that farmers were having to kind of just like mow over entire fields of produce because their supply chains were messed up and they didn't, it would cost more to, to harvest than to not harvest. So they just weren't harvesting. 
Um, and things like that are not uncommon. America right now, before like before we fully experience um, the, the intensity of climate change is an incredibly fertile place. We provide a lot of food to the whole globe. And yet there are people in the United States that don't have enough food to eat. Um, and that is a, that's part of what we're getting at with the plenty and scarcity is that that is like a very real issue in the United States. Um, and we're gonna learn more about that and more about food policy tomorrow night with Mazon. Um, and then we're gonna talk about food distribution on a local level on Wednesday night. And we'll have a bunch of different Jewish organizations that do food distribution in conversation with each other. And that will be an opportunity to talk not about just like food policy in the United States, but specifically um, Jews experiencing poverty, Jews experiencing hunger and Jewish organizations that have arisen to address that. So when we talk about problems in the United States, there are also in the United States Jewish community. Um, and it listen, like if food policy United States were such that nobody was hungry, then like surprise, surprise, you wouldn't have hungry Jews in the United States either. So these problems are very much intertwined. And when we talk about food policy in the United States, we're of course talking about United States Jews as well. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to say, we're, we're not really talking about um, um, homelessness in, in, in this session, that's just not what it's about, but but what I came to learn is that homelessness is also solvable, and homelessness is solvable by straightforwardly building more housing, um, which obviously you could say a million complicated things, but ultimately homelessness is solvable by building more housing, which would cost a tiny fraction of any city's budget um, in any year. Um, and there's a lot of complicated reasons why we don't do that. But, but I think those are just kind of important ideas to come into this, um, come into this feedback. Okay, so that's by way of introduction. Um, and, and then on, um, so our, our like solutions focused um, um, piece of this week will be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And on Thursday, we'll come back together with me and I'll be talking about, uh, it'll be more of like a Tanakh class and thinking about how food distributed by Joseph and by Nehemia um, compare contrast with some of the things that we'll have learned from the organizations we'll be hearing from on, um, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So hopefully that will be fun. Um, but tonight we're going to talk about home. So one thing that you hear a lot, um, especially if you know anyone who um, didn't used to be, okay, so Sarah's talking there's a lot of background noise, right? So Okay, sorry, <laughs> thank you for telling me. Um, okay. Um, okay, so often if you know anyone who like became halachically observant, one of the things that is very challenging, especially if you didn't grow up with observance, is how expensive it is. Once upon a time, you could have one set of dishes. Now you have three sets of dishes for regular and then another two for Passover or something like that, right? Like just basic and, and life is very expensive. All of a sudden you have to have fancy food for Shabbos. All of a sudden you have to have fancy clothes for Shabbos. And we haven't even started talking about day school and Jewish education, right? Just being, and, and let alone, right? And we are the, where observant communities tend to be located are also in these very expensive areas. Living inside of an Eruv is an expensive proposition. Um, and so one of the things that you hear over and over again is that observance is for people who are wealthy, unless maybe you're ultra-Orthodox, in, um, in which case maybe, maybe less. Um, but I want, what, I, what I want us to look at tonight is how that is certainly the opposite of what is baked into halakha. That halakha is really written for people experiencing scarcity, people who know scarcity on their skin and in their bones. And, um, and when we read it from our sort of, or from, let's say, from my like middle class sort of status, we almost like skip over it. We almost don't even see it. We don't see the scarcity baked into the texts because we don't, it doesn't resonate with us. I've never had to make the decisions that this text are, are contemplating. So I imagine, um, I imagine them to be almost like theoretical at best. Sarah, can you please make me a host so that I can share my screen? Here we go. Um, okay, so here's what we're gonna look at. Um, oh, so sorry, one other thing. So in Halakha, you also have not just, um, you have lots of texts about tzedakah, right? 
So those texts about how much to give, who to give, how it's organized, how it's collected, I'm actually like really not gonna focus on that because if you're the one who's giving staka, that means that you have plenty. So I'm interested in the perspective of an observant person who's experiencing scarcity on their skin, not someone who's giving, but maybe someone who's receiving. So before we look at the text, I'll just mention a little bit of the infrastructure that um, Halakha imagines exists though, which is that Zaka would come about maybe in, let's say, three forms. Um, so you have organized staka and then um, like person to person staka. So person to person staka, there's, you know, people might be familiar, my mom just has a whole kind of stratum of what, what are the better forms and, you know, teach a man to fish and, you know, eat every day of his life, whatever, things like that. That's kind of the Maimonides. Um, version that, of staka that you might be familiar with, but that's what sort of a person-to-person staka. Some, you see someone in need, you help them. Okay, that's version one. Version two then is institutionalized staka that comes in two ways. So there's what's called a kupa, which is that the gabai staka, the the, the gabai, the, the person in the community who's in charge of collecting staka, maybe two of them, would come around and they would make an assessment of how much every person in the community owes. And then they would, um, from, from that assessment, um, they would basically make a collection every week um, or ish, yeah, just about every week. And, that, and then they would give out that, they would give out money to the poor enough that they could, the poor could then live for a week out of the, that collection, out of that, that monetary collection that came from everyone. Okay, so that's institutionalized staka version one. Institutionalized staka version two is called a tampu. And that was collected every day and distributed every day. Um, you couldn't eat from the tampu if you had enough food to survive for two days. And it, it, you, um, but that was more like a soup kitchen model. So instead of kapa would be like money and tampu is food. So they would go house to house and Someone would give bread and someone would give their apples and someone would give whatever. They would take all the food and then they would distribute the food they had collected to the to the most desperately poor of the town. So when we we're gonna see a Mishnah, we'll look at later today, and that Mishnah will describe a poor person who eats from the tampui. So that's someone who is in like devastating poverty. Like they don't they don't have enough food to eat for another two days. The money that has come to them from the kupa is not sufficient or they're travelers or whatever, for some reason they don't have, even, even with like institutional help um, or they're not eligible for institutional help for whatever reason, they're eating from this community charity platter um, basically. And, um, and that is kind of the, the poorest, the poorest people in society. So that's, that's all from the perspective of kind of institutions, people who have the ability to give and the texts we're going to look at are, on the other hand, the people who are um, who are in need. So I'm going to now share my screen. So all right, and here, and I think Sarah put this also in the chat, so you can also follow along on your own screen. Um, okay, so these four sources I'm actually not going to look at too much in depth, but they're what they're playing with is this phrase. Um, which means that the Torah spared the money of the Jewish people. So this first case would be like a pretty, um, oh, okay, sorry, I'm speaking very fast. I always do. I will try my hardest to slow down. Thank you for the comment. Okay, um, so this first case that the Gemara brings here in Cullen 49b um, is a case where you have an animal that was slaughtered and the slaughter was kosher, but there is a perforation. And now perforation can potentially be okay under certain circumstances, but it could also be a sign that the animal was a trefa, not kosher, because the animal was going to die. Um, and, there, and therefore the animal was like so sick that even with a perfectly kosher slaughter, the animal is not permitted to eat anything. So that's the question going on here. And they brought, so but it's complicated because you have a perforation, but it's sealed by um, by chaleb. It's sealed by non-kosher fat. So they bring it to Rava and Rava says, um, what, it, why should we be concerned about it? 
It says, first of all, we have a tradition in the name of Rosh Hashanah who says that non-kosher fat can effectively seal up perforation. And secondly, the Torah spares the money of the Jewish people. And when it comes to this idea that you might have to throw out an animal, well, for us, I mean, we talked about factory farming of animals last week, for those of you who were with us, but um, they were not factory farming these animals. If you're killing an animal, you might have farmed it yourself or you bought it for a lot of money. And this was a big investment um, to have an animal that you killed that you wanted to eat. And now it might be a trade flaw. That's a really big deal and a really big monetary loss. And so Rubba factors in to his calculation of what the halacha is about this animal by saying the principle of Torah chasa al mamonam Yisrael, which Torah spares the money of the Jewish people. And what that means is that our baseline assumption is scarcity. Because if you had infinite money, then the Torah wouldn't need to spare the wealth of the Jewish people. The Torah would be like, great, spend your money because you have infinite money. Um, and that's in fact the case um, that, we're, well, that comes up. So in the Gemara and Menachot, which is another place, I actually brought you at the bottom here, I brought you a whole list of places where the Talmud says, um, in case you're interested to look it up, because they're actually all like kind of strange and interesting. But here you have, um, a discussion in Menachot about how the Beit HaMikdash works. That's basically what's going on in Menachot in this part. And they say, um, we have the candelabra, we have the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash, and they say it takes three and a half load of oil um, because there's seven lamps and you need a half load for each lamp of the menorah. So the Gemara says, how do we know? Um, and then it brings a brighter, the tunnel of banan, the Arab advoker, tenla, mizaka, um, shetahad doleket, beholachet, me Arab ad, oh, sorry, a bearab advoker, tenla, mizaka, shetahad doleket, beholachet, me Arab ad boker. So you have a, the brighter says, the, the verse says, it needs to last from evening until morning. And so, how do you know how much oil it needs? It needs the amount of oil that it will that it will stay lit from evening until morning. Okay, so um, uh, okay, so that's basically the general idea. And then the question was, how did they figure out what the quantity is? Um, and so, um, what do we say? Uh, uh, okay. But, Right. So the and so the question is, well, how did they measure it? So the right, the rabbis knew it had to last through the night. Okay, so how do you find out whether it lasts through the night? Do you take too much and then every night you lower it a little bit until you get to that measurement of this exact amount is what's gonna last through the night? Or do you um, put too little and on the first night it doesn't last through the night to add a little bit more and then you add a little bit more and you add a little bit more until it lasts through the night. So those are the two options. How do they go about doing the measurements on the candelabrum until they found out whether it lasted through the night? So they say, one who says they put in a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. Um, uh, oh, sorry. One who says they measured from little to, to great. Wow, that person holds that person holds that yeah they did it on the cheap you know it's much cheaper to put in a little every night than it is to start out with too much and then go down because if you start out with too much you're going to waste some oil um but on the other hand the one who says they put in way too much and then whittled it down how, um, how did they measure it or or what, what does that person what does that person hold by assuming they measured it in that way they hold in on you They say, in a place of wealth, there is no poverty, which means that normally you're in a place of poverty or you act in, in an impoverished way. And in the temple, a place of wealth, that's where you act out as if you're wealthy. There's there's some some like research and history on um, restaurants. And like, what? why do people love restaurants? Restaurants are a place where we act wealthy, where we imagine like, what would it be like if we had servants who brought us and cooked us our food and brought it to us and we sat in a fancy environment? Like that's what we're doing in a place that we're wealthy. So 
So in a, in, a, in a restaurant, we're like pretending as if we're wealthy. So that's kind of what the experience was supposed to be like in the temple. Now the temple is this place of, of wealth and extravagance. And so in the temple, we don't do cheap things, but otherwise we would. It's only when we're in this like wealthy makomashi root of the temple that we do this stuff, but normally we wouldn't. And normally we have the principle of the Torah which is a principle that the, the Torah um, is sensitive to the, to, the, um, to the money of the Jewish people. And that is a principle that assumes scarcity. Okay, so that was kind of all by way of introduction, but we'll see that this line carries over into halachic sources. Um, so you have the Rosh, for example, who's a um, uh, medieval halachist commentator on the Talmud. He fled the Rindfleisch massacres in Germany and came to Spain. So he like bridges Farad and Ashkenaz in a very interesting way. So he gets a question. It's not, it's like a complicated question we're not going to get into about, um, about malicha, about salting meat. Um, and, but the, what I want to point to is his last line here. That he says the person who's going to prohibit this piece of meat that you're asking me about, that person has to bring a very clear and strong um, proof to his position if he's going to prohibit this slice of meat. Why? Why is the burden of proof on the person who's going to prohibit the piece of meat? Because the Torah spared the money of the Jewish people. So not only is this like a principle that we all assume poverty, the Torah assumes poverty and scarcity, but that a posik also should then assume poverty and scarcity and use that as an interpretive principle in understanding what the halakha is and applying it to the lives of people who ask them questions. Um, so when there's a question of, do I need to throw out this piece of meat because it was salted improperly, potentially, um, or do I need to throw out like this whole piece of meat? The burden of proof to say no is very, uh, to say, sorry, to say yes, you need to throw it out is, is very high. The, the evidentiary standard is very high because we start out from a perspective of the Torah doesn't want you to have to, the, to, to lose your money. The Torah doesn't, the Torah expects you to be experiencing scarcity and wants to make it easier for you and wants to spare your money. Um, and so that so that shifts the burden of proof in the opinion of of the rush here. Um, and I could have brought hundreds of other uh, examples of responsa that 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 make very similar very similar kind of meat. Okay, so then the question is fine. So I'm a person who's experiencing scarcity. What am I supposed to do about it? So here's where we get to um, halachic conversations that we as kind of or that I let's say I as maybe like a middle class, like girl at the Maimonides school in Boston growing up, would have just read as like the Talmud kind of like having fun. Um, like, oh, like you can learn really interesting things when you're, when you're like pushed into a corner. And so like the Talmud's perpetually kind of like pushing itself into corners in order to, in order to kind of understand the depths of the Torah. So that's just like the game that the Talmud plays. But I think if you read it from a perspective of scarcity, there's something very hard going on. And the Torah is, or the, the Gemara is speaking to, to you if you're a person who's experiencing this intense scarcity um, in a really deep way, actually. So here we go. So Rava says, Shidli, it's obvious to me, ner beto uner um, the Shabbos candles and um, or a lamp for your home, let's say, and lamp for Hanukkah, ner beto adit, mishum shlom beto. So ner beto is, uh, is typically understood to be a Shabbat candle, and you, um, you give precedence to, your, to the, the lights in your house um, in order for there to be peace in your home. So meaning if you don't have lights in your house, you're going to trip, you're going to I don't know, knock over the table, you're going to get into fights with people because uh, you can't see anything. Um, and so you should, it's better to have light, the lights on in your home than to, for a Hanukkah candles. And literally that means like pay your electricity bill and don't buy yourself Hanukkah candles. Okay. So what that's imagining is a person who's literally having to make that choice. And I think when you learn Gemara from a position 
of someone who's never had to make that choice, you're sort of like, wow, this teaches us something so important about Shabbos candles. Um, like, wow, you know, so all oh, Shabbos candles are all about Shlom Bayit. And if you didn't have Shabbos candles, then, you know, like people would trip on each other. And maybe because Shabbos candles are about Shlom Bayit, that means that women have a greater responsibility in that because women have a greater responsibility over the peace in their homes, um, all of that stuff, right? And all of that is kind of centered on this Gemara and Gemara's like it. But what if you're reading it from the perspective of someone who's had to make a decision before about paying their electricity bill to keep the lights on in their home or doing some kind of Jewish ritual? All of a sudden, it's not about like some interesting like Chav in Hanukkah candles, it's or Shabbos candles rather. It's actually about, yeah, like the Talmud can imagine my situation. The Talmud can imagine a person who needs to choose between Jewish ritual practice and keeping, literally keeping the lights on. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's like just straightforwardly what the Talmud is saying. And because we're so removed, or many of us are so removed from having to choose, make choices about our electricity bills, we don't bother to take the take that half beat to read the Talmud as it's kind of just straightforwardly, um, just straightforwardly written about. And it keeps going in all sorts of different other decisions you might have to make. So So what if you have to choose between keeping the lights on in your house and making kiddush? Again, you keep the lights on because of Shalom Bayi. Rava asked, Okay, so let's say you have enough money to keep the lights on, but then you have to choose between Hanukkah candles and wine for Kiddush. Which one of those is preferable? So Gamara says, ah, Kiddush Hayom Adif, the Tadir, Odilma, Nechaka Adif, Mishum, Kishimimimisa. The Gamara says you could argue in both ways. Well, Kiddush we do more often, but also maybe Nechaka is better because of, um, because it's really important to publicize the miracle. And so then Rabbi says, or then well, the Gemara says, buttons buy another So once he asked the question, then it became clear to him, which how often does that happen to us? I, I love it when that happens in Gemara. Um, so then he says, Oh, actually, if you have to choose between Kiddush and Hanukkah lights, then you should um you should choose your Hanukkah lights because um publicizing the miracle is more important. And this same exact thing keeps going. So in, in later on in the in the halachic process, we get to the Shulchan Aruch. Um, so we're whatever a thousand years later, let's say, than the Gemara. Um, but the Shulchan Aruch really like takes this whole conversation and keeps going with it. So um, and but I just wanted to bring it out because he has um, there's a really intense thing here that happened. Whereas so the question is. Um, we're talking about you a scarcity in wine or like fancy drinks upon which someone can make a, someone can designate a kosher bracha a a cup on which you would make a bracha whether that's kiddish um birkat hamazon which um there's we'll get to this in a second but there's a debate in hacha whether you have a very old debate in hacha whether you need to bench whether you need to save birkat hamazon grace after meals um, with a cup of wine or whether you do not need that cup of wine for grace after meals and you can just say it um so um in and the same thing on which you could like say how so there's different rules about each of those things but um but basically the the you don't have enough let's call it wine but for that for now so he says if he doesn't have wine he doesn't have alcohol and he doesn't have any other kind of fancy drinks so he doesn't have anything to make Havdala on. What does he do? Well, the first thing is, well, do you think you'll have food? Do you think you'll have something to make Havdala on? Do you think you'll have wine, grape juice by tomorrow? Because if you will, then then just wait. You might have food also, but like you're actually not allowed to eat your food. You have to wait until tomorrow. Um, and how is he getting grape juice and wine tomorrow? Who even knows? Maybe he'll arrive somewhere. Maybe someone is coming who has it. Maybe he'll be able to work in the morning, make enough money to go by. Who knows? Um, but but maybe if he'll get it tomorrow, then he should just wait. Okay. So what happens if he has one cup? And he does not expect that tomorrow is going to resolve anything. 
It's better that he should eat before he makes Havdalah, and then on his one cup, he'll say Birkat Amazon, and then afterwards he'll make Havdalah on that same cup. Um, like the, you've seen this if you go to Shal Shodis at, at a synagogue that benches Shal Shodis on a cup of wine and then takes that cup of wine to the Beit Knesset and uses it for Havdalah. That's kind of what they're suggesting here. Um, and um, so that it, for the person who holds that Birkat Amazon requires a um a cup uh, a cup of wine that you end birkatamazon with a boripriagafen. But if you don't think birkatamazon requires a cup of wine, then you should make Havdala first and then eat afterwards and um and then make birkatamazon just after your meal without a cup of wine. Okay, but that all of that was like fun and interesting but not so buoyant. Here's the point that I think is really is 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 really um intense. Okay, so now they're going to describe what they mean by this cup of wine that you have. Umayri um, So your your um, the cup that we're talking about only has exactly a reviet of liquid. A reviet is the minimum requirement for all of these cups of wine, wine, grape juice, alcohol, whatever it is. That's that's the size it needs to be a reviet. Um, and and you only have your revit amount, your minimal amount, and what is in that minimal amount of volume has already been so diluted that if you were to dilute it even more, it would be undrinkable. So what does that mean, right? You might have started out your Shabbat with like this much wine. And then you diluted it, took some out, made kiddush on it. And then you diluted it again, took some more out, and made kiddush on it in the morning. And now you, all you have left has already been diluted two watered down two times. And now you're and now you're talking about uh, okay, it really it, like it won't be eligible to make brachot on it anymore if I dilute it again. Right. So imagine like that also, again, that level of scarcity. Now, admittedly, it could be not scarcity. It could be a lack of preparation. But that person then should wait until the morning or whatever it is, wait until a shop opens in the morning and figure it out. Right. But if it's not about a lack of preparation, but about scarcity, then that's the person who's really trying to get every last drop out of out of this situation. Um, okay. Um, right, so and it keeps going after that with other like if you can't afford both these things, which one should you choose? If you can't afford both these things, which one should you choose? So I think the first way that the halakha has to deal with scarcity is by saying prioritize. Um, is by saying um, and, and we're going to show you how to prioritize. So yeah, it's okay. Like you can't afford to do everything. We're going to help you figure out what takes precedence over what. And um, and that's okay. Which, by the way, I think we've kind of like come a long way from it. And and I think that's kind of a little bit tied in also to the fact that we almost never read these texts literally. We're always like, oh, it teaches us something about Shabbos candles and peace in the home and women's role in the home and like blah 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 all of that stuff. But like actually, these texts are about I cannot afford to do all of the mitzvot that I want to do. How do I navigate that? And, and it's it's a little bit like arresting, like how easy it is to like not see that in these texts. But actually, the the, the Gemara is talking to that, and the Halakha is talking to that, and saying, yeah, in that situation, like do you want you to prioritize, we're gonna help you figure out how to how to make sure you kind of do the right mitzvah of 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 the ones that you have to choose between um, in that situation. That is gotten loud again. Okay, sorry, folks. Um, okay. So I want to go on to another tactic that the halacha has to deal with um, with scarcity. So that one was, okay, you just can't do everything. That's the level of scarcity that you are experiencing. Fine, we'll teach you. We'll show you how to navigate that. Uh, um, okay, so now we have another question. This seems very similar to the ones that came previous. So here it says, you can't afford both tefillin and mezuzah, which one should you prioritize? So Shmuel says you should prioritize mezuzah. 
And Rav Huna says, um, you should prioritize to fill it. So why does Shmuel say that? My time by the Shmuel. So Shmuel says, well, on Yom Tov and Shabbos, you have Mrs. up on your home, but you're not wearing to fill in. Um, and what does Rav Huna say? My time is Rav Huna. Well, um, if you're uh, on a boat, you don't have a mezuzah, and if you are traveling in the desert, you don't have a mezuzah, but you'll still be wearing tefillin, so clearly tefillin take preference. And then we have a Mishnah that supports Shmuel, which says that if you have tefillin that have fallen apart, well, if you have tefillin that have fallen apart, you can turn them into a mezuzah, but a mezuzah that fell apart, you're not allowed to turn that into tefillin. Why is that? Because Malin Bakodesh We only go up in levels of holiness and we don't go down. Um, so that seems that 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 um that Mishnah seems pretty strongly to say that mezuzah should take priority because mezuzah is on a higher level of holiness than to fill it. But admittedly, what we're learning right now is Yerushalmi, so it's halachic relevance is like a little bit question mark. Um Sometimes your shalmi is like super important, sometimes not. Um, so we'll see here that it gets a little complicated. So here's the Shulchan Aruch. Um, and the Shulchan Aruch says, hey, mm-hmm. You can't afford both of them. You should get to fill in, says the Shulchan Aruch, paskening against, uh, who was it? Shmuel, right? Paskening against, um, yeah, Shmuel. Um, the Mishnah Brura says, um, Tfilin, take precedence because they're a bodily mitzvah and also because they're more holy. That gets to be says that it's complicated to get discussed later. Mihu says the Mishnah Bura, however, for us, we only put on tefillin when we are saying the Shema and the Amidah. If it's possible for you to borrow, then then you should spend your money buying a mezuzah because you can't borrow a mezuzah from your neighbor. It cannot be both on your door and on their door. Um, and therefore, you um, you should, says the Mishnah Bura, you should buy your mezuzah and borrow someone, borrow the guy next year's villain. An interesting thing that's happening beneath this. So I brought it because right, option number one was you just have to choose between mitzvot and you're gonna choose, and we're gonna give you guidance as to how to choose. Option number two is, can you borrow, says the Mishnah Bura. But I wanna point something out here, which is that we're never asking you to sell your home. The guy who's wondering, I need to fill in or mezuzah, the halacha doesn't say, oh, you wanna know how to not need mezuzah? sell your home, buy tefillin, um, right? I mean, that, that is a theoretical option, right? That is a theoretical option to say, be homeless so that you can not require a mezuzah and then buy tefillin, halachic problem resolved, right? But like that does not cross anybody's mind because that is bonkers, um, and, right? That, that is like a ridiculous thing and in halacha, we do not even entertain that possibility, but again, you only come to see that when you're reading it for scarcity, right? If you're reading this as like, oh, let me learn something beautiful about the rel- the relative holiness between mezuzah and tefillin, which is how most, most many of the people learning today would learn this text, you would miss that you, that that possibility is never entertained. You only come to realize that once you're reading with an eye for scarcity. Okay, so here's another way to deal with it would be exactly when we had our little introduction to like institutionalized charity in the eye of halacha. Um, so we talked about the charity plate. So here's here's um, just a Mishnah that describes that. Um, and I'm just bringing the Mishnah because um, the Gemara that, that the next Gemara that we'll look at talks about, uh, is, is um, jumping off of this Mishnah. So I wanted to bring it anyways. Um, so the Mishnah is, um, one of, one of the very beloved um, prakim of the Gemara that we'll get to relatively soon in about 50 days in Dafyomi. Um, the Mishnah says, Sachim Adam on, um, on the Arab Pesach, you should not eat from the afternoon until it gets dark. So even the poorest of Jews should not eat 
a meal on Passover night until he reclines, which means he has to experience wealth on the Passover night. Uh, and he should not have fewer than four cups of wine, but even if he is in, again, if he's the poorest, poorest class of people who are eating from the charity plate, that person too gets four cups of wine. And it's probably, and it's in, certain, in a certain way connected to, you're doing like a temple-themed ritual, and in the temple you experience wealth. And so too here, right? Every, so, so too on the on the Seder night, everyone has this experience of wealth in And so even someone who gets this food from the charity plate. And that's how, and that's another way to do it. You have all these mitzvot that you have to do. How can you do that? Well, you can accept charity. However, the reason why, meaning shouldn't that just be the answer in every case, right? We look at this and say, oh, Arba Kusu, that the community provides for you. Charity, you'll get charity for that. How come that wasn't the answer when it was like, well, I don't have, do I have to fill in or mezuzah? Oh, the community should just provide you with them. How come that's not the answer in every case, right? If it's the answer on Pesach, shouldn't that just be the answer every day? I don't have enough wine for Havdalah. Well, the tampoy maybe could provide you with wine. Maybe the kupak could provide you with wine. Shouldn't that be the obligation of the Jewish community for the Jewish community's poorest members and in fact, I mean, we'll hear about it from on Wednesday night. We're going to hear from people who do food distribution for the Jewish community. You can ask them, do you make sure that everyone has enough grape juice for enough grape juice or enough wine for Kiddush and Havdalah? And if the answer is yes, which I imagine that, that it may, may well be, then, then, then why did we need all of this halacha about what to do if you don't have enough? Okay, so here's my... Here's my best attempt at an answer to that question. So one, you can always come up with some crazy, oh, you're in a desert island, there isn't anyone to help you, the halacha needs to apply even in a desert island. Okay, very good. Like, oh my God, that's an answer that, that works for you and, and that's a totally fine answer. I think there's another answer, um, which is this. Uh, so this is the Gemara from Brachot 6b. And we have Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar, and they both say, Kivan Shemitarich Adam once a person needs the help of others, his face changes like a karom, as it says, when the karom is exalted among the sons of men, karom zalut is adam. My karom, the Gemara says, what is a karom? Ravimi came from, to Babel from Israel. He said. There is a bird in the city by the seas, the Karom Shmo, and his name is Karom. And when the sun rises, the bird changes several colors. So when a person needs other people, his face changes color. What does that what does that mean? Does anyone want to hop in? What does it mean when a person needs other people, his face changes colors or her face changes colors? Susan, are you saying something? Because uh, you're muted, but I want to hear if you have something to say. I I was mumbling it to myself. Oh, I so I caught you in the act. I was thinking about the phrase of of Malbim Panav, that when somebody is embarrassed, their face turns white. Yeah, so I don't know if that's related to this or not, but that's what I was thinking about mumbling to myself. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, I think that's a really beautiful read that if you uh, that that your face changes color when you're embarrassed, um, and that shame is a big piece of this. Absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. Let's let's just round this out. We have just a couple like a uh, few more sources to look at together, and then we'll we'll take we'll take questions at the at the end, or you can continue to feel free to interrupt. So now we're going back to that mission that we just looked at in Pesachim. And here we have the Gemara saying, a few minutes, the Gemara says, this halacha applies even if the poor person accepts funds from the charity plate. The, the Gemara, oh, so the Gemara says, Pshita. the Gemara says, this is obvious, right? Exactly our question. Should the charity plate always provide for everyone? So the Gemara says, ah, this is this isn't really like a, a, um, um, th this mission is necessary to teach even according to the opinion of Rabbi Akiva who says the Amar 
Ba'al titzarech labriot. Make your Shabbat like a weekday and do not be beholden to other people. But here on the Cedar night, because of the obligation to publicize the miracle of the Exodus, then Rabbi Kiva would agree that in order to adequately publicize the miracle of the Exodus, here he agrees that you should accept charity. So Rabbi Akiva is saying, you know what, accepting charity stinks. It's not a good experience. Um, and it's better to not have a fancy food for Shabbos than to have to accept charity. It would be better to not. And then, and, and the Gemara keeps going on exactly, on exactly um, that same kind of track, Tamil Veliyahu. So we have a, um, a breakdown from the house of Eliyahu, who teaches that even though Rabbi Kiva says, make your Shabbat like a weekday and do not need the help of other people, but you should do something small to inside his house to make it Shabbos. What is this? Amar of Papa, Kasa the Harsana, or Papa says, it is a small fried fish. If it's not, Rabbi Yehuda ben Tima Omer, Have Oz Kan Omer, Vakal Kanesha Rat Katvi Begibor Kaari, La Asot Raton Abiha Shabasha Mayim. You should be bold like a leopard, light like an eagle, run like a deer, and heroic, strong like a lion, in order to do the will of your father in heaven. So even if you are extremely poor, you should not accept help from other people, but you should have some food that a small fried fish that in your home is special for Shabbat and that is what you eat on Shabbat. Um, and so you might read this text and say, wow, Rabbi Akiva, so privileged, things like it's better to take, um, to not take stuff from other people and like, you know, protect your dignity over, um, over feeding your family. Like, yeah, only someone who doesn't know what it's like would say something like so you could say that, and maybe that would be a totally correct perspective. Um, but I do just want to say in defense of Rabbi Akiva that um, the Gemara in the Dharam tells a story about Rabbi Akiva that implies that after his marriage to the daughter of Kalba Savua, who was a very wealthy landowner, um, Kalba Savua, um, he was very against the marriage and he cut them off. And so they were extremely poor. Um, and um, it says, the Sipa Havaganu Beitimna, in the winter, they would sleep in a storehouse of straw. Hava Kaman Kitla Tivna Mizaya, and he would gather strands of straw from her hair, from Rachel, his wife's hair. Amarlan, he would say there, I said, if I possibly could. I would, if I possibly had the means, I would place on your head a Jerusalem of gold, which was a type of crown that women wore that was prohibited to be worn after the temple was destroyed. There's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of like a, a appearance of these Jerusalem of gold uh, of your other places in the Gemara. Um, and uh, anyways, whatever, but, but they're so poor that they're sleeping in straw and he's collecting it out of her hair and imagining all the beautiful things he would love to give her that they cannot afford. Um, and then Eliyahu came. At Eliyahu, Idam Lahon Ka'ansha, and Eliyahu appeared to them as a regular person. But Kakare Abava, and he called out from the door, Amar Lahu, and he said to them, Havali Porta de Tivna, please give me some of your straw. Because my wife gave birth and I do not have anything on which to lay her. Amar la Rabbi Akiva la'intatayr. Rabbi Akiva said to his wife, "Chazeh gavra da'afilu tivna lo itlay." Here's a person who doesn't even have, which is to say that Rabbi Akiva, at least according to the Gemara and the Dara, knew quite a bit about poverty and scarcity and relative scarcity. Also, that even he and his wife, who were sleeping in straw and, and fantasizing about wealth. Um, they could come to realize that other people had less than them too. And they could come to understand um, that, that, um, that the poverty and, and scarcity, there, there's almost, almost no end to how, 
to how intense it can get. Um, and so I, I would like to say that it seems to me that Rabbi Akiva does understand something about poverty and still says to, to, the, to the person impoverished, it makes sense to try to make do. And what it would mean then to make do is sometimes to say, I can't do it all. I have to make decisions. My decision is I'm not going to have Hanukkah candles and I'm yes, going to keep the lights on. I'm not going to have a Shabbos meal, but I'm going to figure out a way to make it work in my home anyways. Um, and that really gets brought down the Halacha and the Rambam when he's describing Oneg Shabbat. He says, yes, of course, you should have the fanciest food possible, but if you can't afford it, um, then you should just have cooked vegetables, just have cooked vegetables or something like it. Mishum kavod Shabbat, Oneg Shabbat, right? If you're having cooked vegetables and you're calling and you're saying my cooked vegetables are for the honor of Shabbos, then Hareza Oneg Shabbos. That is sufficient to enjoy your Shabbos. The tomorrow, you don't have to suffer, you don't have to make yourself suffer, and you don't, and you just and, 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 and in the Rambam. It's a form of suffering to ask other people for help. With Omachim is, is you don't have to make yourself suffer, suffer or ask other people in order to get a lot of food together for Shabbos. Um, and, and then he says, I mean, we saw just saw it for me, Akiva, I'm just not funny, are you showing me our earliest seed to say, say Shabbat Chachol, make your Shabbat a weekday and don't need the help of other people. So the reason why the answer in the Gemara, I, I want to say, is not just the community should provide for you everything, is that there's like an ethic of, of cutting back, but not because like, oh, you deserve to be poor, like you just, you you know, you should buy a, one less latte every day and then it's just your like being irresponsible fault. Like, I think that's really not what it is. I think it's really about the dignity um, that all Jews should have it. And if halacha is too onerous because, and, and, and would then cause indignities, the answer is to compromise on the halacha, which I think is really, um, really intense, right? Like the idea that like between your Shabbos candles and your Hanukkah candles, like what you're choosing there is the indignity of not being able to see at your house at night versus doing a mitzvah, the answer is go see your house at night, retain your dignity. Dignity first, halacha second, at least in some cases, um, when, we're, when we're looking at it, this from a perspective of scarcity um, and a perspective of poverty. Um, so those are the stories I have for you tonight. Um, I'm sure some of what I said was like a little bit, um, maybe like edgy or like a little bit uncomfortable in terms of the way we typically think about both resources and also poverty. Um, and feel free, I'm happy to try and answer your questions. Um, but I'm hoping that one of the things that will come out particularly on Wednesday night is how we actually balance, um, how we actually balance dignity with food distribution. That, Cause that's a huge issue. Um, it's a huge issue on the giving end, a huge issue on the receiving end. And, and it's an issue on the giving end also because there's a lot of Jewish communities have funding. Like, let's say all these community rabbis right now, a lot of federations gave out funding to community rabbis saying like, who in your community has lost their jobs? Give them money. But in most in the communities that I'm familiar with, at least, even people who've lost their jobs are unwilling to take money from them. It's very hard to convince people to take a charity check from their own synagogue to which until five minutes ago they were a Jews paying member. Like figuring out how to live a dignified um, existence as a Jew who is impoverished is extremely complicated. And I think that's what the halakha is driving at here. And that's the truth that they're getting at. Um, and, um, and it's one of, and, and, and so when we're going to hear please God, on Wednesday from these organizations that are really trying to deal with that in quite sophisticated and interesting ways, I hope what you'll see is that that's deeply embedded into our halachic system also. We had a question in the chat from Steve who says, does halacha address why kosher food is more than twice as expensive as non-kosher food? Um, I think what, I mean, no. Um, a few a few things on that. One thing that we learned last week is um, it's not all kosher food, meaning my corn on the cob costs the same as someone else's corn on the cob. It's it's kosher meat, kosher cheese um, that are the prior kosher prepared goods 
that are the primary um, greater expense. Um, and so like the first thing I would say is that like a lot of kosher foods, like kosher foods are just like maybe like not even necessary to eat. Um, and um, yeah, and, and I would say that like my feeling is like a lot of that is complicated. It's wrong, on the one hand it's wrong, right? Like food should be more affordable. On the other hand, our workers should be paid and, and producing kosher food requires a lot more work than producing non-kosher food because of all the oversight involved um, and, and, and the smaller, um, smaller scale of the market. So I don't have a good answer to that, but I, you're right that it's a huge problem. Let's say it like that. Okay, Eva asked, is there a reading of the issue of dignity, particularly in the Hanukkah candles versus Kiddush wine issue? or the first reading of the mezuzah versus tefillin issue, where the halacha wants you to be dignified not just in your own eyes, but also in the eyes of the community. Does the halacha explicitly or implicitly want us to prioritize performing wealth-like things over experiencing them, or is that a false dichotomy? Huh, right. I think where we saw that come out the most was that formative, um, piece of, um, of our bakosu, of the four cups on that Seder night, that on the Seder night, everyone has to have this experience of being wealthy, right? Even the poor person in Israel shouldn't eat until they have reclined, because on the Seder night, everyone reclines like a dignitary. And um, there is a piece of performative wealth that comes along with, with Jewish practice, and that's very well put. But the question is, is maybe when? Um, like, is that every Shabbos, I think Rabbi Akiva and following this footsteps, the Rambam would say, um, that can't be every Shabbos. Yes, Shabbos, you should find a way to make Shabbos special in your home by um, performative wealth, probably the wrong, the wrong option there. Um, uh, did I kind of, uh, Eva, did I answer your question or not, not fully? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. I think there's, oh, I have a lot of anxiety about like balancing the idea of performing things with experiencing them. And I feel like it's a very like modern framing. So it's interesting to see how the halacha deals with it in a sort of different context. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really, I, I, yeah, I hadn't quite thought about that. You're right. Um, I mean, they definitely have this idea of performance, but it's not the same way that, that we talk about it at all. Um, and um, yeah, I have, to think, I have to think more about, about what you're asking. Uh, what I said was kind of my, you know, I read your question and that was what came into my head, but, but it's a very interesting question with the formative elements of it. Um, we're just about of time, but if we have like one more question, I'm happy to take it. Okay, Steve says, overall, it's just expensive to be Jewish and observant. Thankfully, we don't observe Halloween. If we did, just imagine the price of pumpkins. Yes, Jewish pumpkins would be 12 times more expensive than regular pumpkins. <laughs> yeah, no, but listen, I think it's a big problem. <laughs> um, I, think, I think what you're kind of getting at, Steve, and, and this is kind of how I open, is that observant life as we've currently constructed it is extremely expensive. That said, if your Shabbos meal is the Rambam's cooked vegetables, made lakavod Shabbos, that is not an expensive Shabbos meal, right? Like that, that is just like a fancy vegan Shabbos meal made with things that you're buying same price as everyone else. And, um, and like, I think, I think there are ways to live this life in a less expensive way, but that's not like a lot, like a lot less of it is halakha and a lot more of it is like observant communities. Um, and where those communities have gone and decided to live and decided um, decided to move. Oh, the price of etrog. Yeah, but I'm sure you know that for most of Jewish history, like it was one etrog in the town kind of thing, not like one etrog per person. Um, but yes, you're right, the price of etrog. That's a really great example of a time when it is just real super expensive. And in a holiday when we are, this is to you, Eva, in a holiday where we're performing homelessness, right? That is what the sukkah is. We are performing homelessness on sukkahs. And whatever, sukkahs and homelessness for another time, but like for sure that's what sukkah is. Um, and, and, and then we spend, you know, whatever, $50 on a cheap bedroom. Um, you're right, it's sponsored. Um, 
my, my um, to learn more about the etro trade in the United States, my uh, my father and his students at LF have put out some interesting uh, scholarship on that that might shed some light on also why they are so attentive. Um, okay, I think we're going to stop here, but please do come back, join us tomorrow and Wednesday, and then we'll summarize it all and look for some role models or not role models on Thursday. Um, and it was a pleasure learning with you all. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for your learning and your enthusiasm tonight. Thank you. Thank you.